Good morning, gang, and happy Tuesday to you. Uh, good to be with you here again for our time in uh, 2 Corinthians, our Tuesday devotion looking at this very important and insightful epistle of the Apostle Paul's. Uh, forgive me if uh, you do hear my allergies coming through. I have had, uh, the fall has come with a vengeance for me, apparently. And so I am definitely feeling it in my head, and I'm taking every bit of uh, allergy medication I can find. So, uh, But I'm a little stuffed up today. Nevertheless, we're going to dig into the Word of God together. And, uh, and it's fitting that I'm dealing with, uh, with allergies and discomfort, because today we're going to be uh, talking about something that we all try and avoid, especially, I think, in this culture uh, and that is the reality of uh, of death and the disease and destruction. Um, I mean, the truth is, humanity's always tried to find some way of of beating death because the reality is it's scary and dreadful, and and we can't really even imagine uh, not living. And so we do everything we can to sterilize it, to clean it up, to make it quote part of the life cycle. Uh, that is. I think a current trend is to see death as just one more part of life. Um, the most recent piece of news helping us avoid the reality of death, at least for a little while, is research currently going on at Harvard and MIT that claims to be able to reverse the aging of our chromosomes, which in turn will supposedly give us potentially eternal life on Earth. Uh, no comment as to the actual quality of that life. You know, that's a separate issue. But the point is we're always trying to figure out a way to get past this, to get rid of it. And in contrast to this wishful thinking, uh, Christians have always dealt with death head on. At least our theology has. The scriptures certainly have. There is no avoidance, there is no denying its pain, there is no minimizing it. Scripture refers to it as, quote, the last enemy, and its effects lead to a life of, of groaning. Yet at the, at the same time, even while acknowledging death's awful effects, so much, by the way, that when Jesus comes across death at his uh, friend Lazarus's tomb, even though he knows he's going to raise him from the dead, the pain of it sears Jesus just as much as everybody else, and he weeps. Even though we face death like that, Christians also have spoken with the most hope through it. And so we live in this already and not yet tension. Though we will all die unless the Lord comes first, which could be any time, uh, we are already risen with Christ and seated in the heavenly realms, Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses 5 and 6. So death may not be avoided, but it is defeated. So this is what Paul spends our time in our text today discussing. Now, I can't see who's all joining us here, but I can see a few names. Autry, Bonnie, Ashley, good morning to you all. If I miss some of you, forgive me. Um, so let's look at what Paul says. First of all, he talks about seeing death through the lens of Christ's completed work. And he does this by using a number of images to describe what life is like here on earth and what life will one day be. The first image he uses is of a tent in a temple. Verse 1 of chapter 5. 
For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now this is a theme that is persistent throughout the scriptures. It, it makes good sense, too, to describe our present state as a tent. Uh, for starters, uh, Paul was a tent maker, as Acts 18 verse 3 says, so it makes sense that he would think in those terms. But secondly, a tent is always meant to be a temporal dwelling. Uh, tents tear apart. They don't protect from the elements very well. And so the idea is that our present bodies, our present lives, are meant to be seen as short-lived in light of what's coming. We are to heed the wisdom of the writer uh, to, of Ecclesiastes who instructs us that our life in the long scheme of things is but a vapor or a, a mist. And so Paul is echoing the same type thing here by using the imagery of uh, a tent. Now, some of you have probably heard me tell this story before, but uh, when I think of tents and how unstable they are, I can't help but think of the time I was camping with my brother and a couple of friends in the California San Bernardino Mountains. When I got woken up at about 5.30 in the morning, the light was just coming up, the sun was just coming up, and I was woken up quite, um, <laughs> quite violently because I was informed there was a bear in our campground and so I immediately looked outside the tent and indeed there was a bear in our campground and he was about uh, 10 maybe 12 feet away from the entrance to our tent and I remember thinking at the time even as I tried to be as still as I can as I could um, if the bear wanted to do something to us the tent would do literally no things to protect us from this animal None. As a matter of fact, it just might make it easier for him to grab us up as a snack. I mean, there, there was, it were all contained in one place there. Uh, and so the, the tent is this temporal dwelling that is not going to protect against the elements very well. Now, if you've heard the story before, you know that my brother was not nearly as afraid as I was, and his, being a younger man, he decided, thinking that he was one with nature, that he was going to go out, out of the tent and speak with the bear, and that didn't work out so well as the bear barked at him and scared us all to death. So, anyway, that's a separate story for another time. Uh, the word tent can be translated here tabernacle, and so just as the tabernacle in the Old Testament was only a temporary dwelling for God's glory, so too our bodies are a temporary dwelling for God's spirit. We tabernacle now, waiting for the day that we will be the true temple. So that's the idea that Paul is using in verse 1 here. We have to see our lives as temporal, but one day being made into, or being... Uh, we already are, but the already and the not yet is what's happening here. We already are part, parts of the temple, but we're not yet. All right, second image he uses of our life in light of death is of, well, a change of clothes, so to speak. Dirty and clean clothes. Listen to, and it's putting on or putting over our present clothes. Listen to verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened, 
Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So you see the clothing language here that Paul uses. Now, it's important to note, again, is this already not yet tension thing, that Galatians 3.27 indeed uses the same language of us being clothed, in that case, with the righteousness of Christ, and that that happens at our baptism. You can go back again, Galatians 3.27, and see the text. So we already are, and yet we are not yet. You see the contrast. You'll see this in Scripture all the time. We already are declared righteous in the sight of God through faith in Christ, but we live out this life still struggling with sin. Uh, Another passage that uses this clothing imagery to talk about salvation and us being saved and delivered from death is Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. I won't read that all right now, but you can go there later if you'd like to see it. Uh, Also, the way of looking at death that Paul brings up here is he, he says specifically it's like us putting clothes on above what's already there. And this reminds us that we will still indeed have bodies in heaven. They'll just be new and better bodies. And this is very important because too often within Christian circles, we have learned to believe that we're going to be these disembodied sort of, you know, orbish blobs. I don't know what the heck we are. When I see imagery, though, from uh, Christian uh, history, describe what we are in heaven, it's not biblical. We will be embodied people, folks. Christians affirm the goodness of the body. It's just that the flesh will not be what contains the body. will be something different. will be renewed, resurrected, not able to get sick, not able to die, not able to go through the pain we do here. Uh, one other thing I'm, I'm reminded of is I think about this imagery of salvation being like putting clothes over what we already have is really the doctrine or the idea of the simul. What do I mean by the simul? That's just theological shorthand for uh, Martin Luther's phrase that we are simultaneously saint and sinner at the same time. So we have been clothed with Christ and yet the reality is there's this sinner, this waging, sinner waging battle against us. And if you ever want to see that contrast, man, the best way you can find that is maybe go to Romans 7, verse 24, and then just skip ahead a verse or two to chapter 8, verse 1. Romans 7, verse 24, Paul says, Who will save me from this wretched body of death? As he thinks about his own continuing struggles with sin, even as a believer, even as a dang apostle, he's still struggling with sin, and he says, who can possibly save me? And then in 8.1, he gives his thundering answer, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can save me from this body of death? Christ Jesus, because he has decided emphatically not to condemn me, but to deliver me, and he's shown it to be so on the cross. All right, I'm preaching. Let's move on. Uh, Third image Paul uses for death and resurrection here, exile and home. And this is, again, you see this theme all throughout Scripture. Verse 6, So we are always of good courage, 
we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You see that the theme of wanting to be at home, but being in exile here. And there is a sense in us uh, and with us that we really are never home, isn't there? And especially as we get older. Our nostalgia, uh, which by the way comes from a Greek word, it's two words, nostos, home, and algos, pain. Nostalgia literally means homesickness in Greek, or home pain for home. Nostalgia tells us that such a place exists here on earth, that there is something called home. But oh, how often it is the case when we try and go back to that place that we think will be home, that will give us the sense of being finally where we were meant to be. It eludes us. And like the Israelites in exile before us, we long for our homeland, but we'll never quite attain it in this life. That's not an accident. We are meant to long for a better heavenly city, the author of Hebrews says. God has placed eternity in our hearts so that we would not be content with a world that is fallen and broken and just learn to accept that that's the best there is. But no, we're meant to long for a better home. We're meant to long for something that is everlasting. And that's Paul's great idea here. So let's talk about what the, uh, the present hope of seeing death through the lens of Christ's completed work uh, he says, quote, we groan, but we are of good courage. Now, the word for good courage uh, means to be bold or, or confident. And the idea that Paul is talking about is that if we know that eternal life is ours, then we need not fear whatever may come down the pike towards us. Awkward conversations, marital troubles, loss of work or employment, loss of friends, and yes, even death. The fact that eternal life is presently ours, gifted to us by Christ, enables us to live with a freedom and a boldness and a confidence. So if you want to see what that looks like, how that sounds to live with freedom and boldness and confidence, do yourself a favor and go to the end of Romans chapter 8, where Paul lists every possible thing that could come up against us and says, at the end of it all, whether you're facing death, demons, the devil himself, the powers of all hell, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that is what gives him and us boldness. And what's the end result of... Uh, seeing death through the lens of Christ. Well, Paul says it this way, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And I'll stop there for the time being. 
The first thing Paul mentions as a result of being renewed people is that we make it our aim to please him. So as God has declared us to be this new person in Christ, our new creation does indeed love to please God, does want to please God, but also remembers that ultimately God is 100% satisfied in Christ. Secondly, I think Paul is saying this makes us not fear judgment, but actually look forward to it. Because remember, folks, there's two kinds of people that will stand at the judgment. The one kind of person will stand in their own works and therefore will be determined, will be judged to be either good or evil based on, entirely on what they've done. But the other person in Christ will stand before the judgment seat and be bold and confident to know that what awaits him is a throne of grace. The judgment is not something to be feared for the Christian, it's something to look forward to. Because the judgment is that time when God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you say, I don't remember doing much good or much faithful things at all. As the sheep say in the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says, well, I did a lot through you that you didn't know. Come on in and enjoy your rest. <laughs> all right. Uh, and then finally, uh, I love that this leads to being motivated to tell others. Uh, being motivated to tell others, which is what Paul ends with here. And then we'll spend a great deal of time talking about next week as he discusses what it looks like to be an ambassador uh, for Christ. And, and I'll just say this in closing, when, it, when I think about telling others, any time that I have tried to badger people into witnessing for Christ and telling others about Christ by saying, by guilting them or by pushing them, and I've done it, you know, I've been at this game for a while now, 12 plus years of ministry, um, it has produced no results, none. I mean, fat goose egg. It might produce people for a little while going out in their own strength to try and bring people into the church, but eventually it leads to exhaustion and tiredness and burnout. But... When I just lay out all that Jesus has done for you and for the world around you, you know what I found? I found that people actually want to tell others about Jesus. It's so easy to guilt people into think you're going to get somewhere by using the law as a, uh, as a gigantic hammer to get results. But folks, the gospel is what produces fruit. So... I'm not going to tell you you have to go out and tell others. I'm going to tell you that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for your neighbor to be saved. So enjoy it and let God do what he's going to do through you anyway. All right. That's it, gang. We went through it. We did it. Um, I will be back here next Tuesday uh, to... Uh, to dig into the end of 2 Corinthians 5. And then the following week, I will not be here because I will be in San Diego, California for the Here We Still Stand conference. If you're on the fence about that, there's like 8.3 tickets left. I mean, I'm not kidding, but um, there's not many. Grab them if you're on the fence right now because they will be gone. So uh, anyhow, always good to be with you guys. Have a great week. God bless you.